Now, if you turn in your Bibles to, where are we going to turn to? Tell me. Acts chapter, uh, yeah, 9. We're going to go to 9 today. 8 finishes up with this amazing miracle where Philip, one of the young ladies in the church said, oh, what was the word you used? He he was teleported at the end of that situation there where he shared Christ uh, with the Ethiopian eunuch and then the, the eunuch was baptized and then Philip, boom, he was teleported there. So you can read back in there. It's very exciting. Um, who knew that was possible? But all things are possible with God. We're going to start with chapter 9 because there's two truths that are revealed in this passage that change everything. Now, you may already know these truths, but it's important for you to understand that anyone who is lost, anyone who does not know God, needs to know these two things. And these two things give us life and give us purpose and a place in this world. So let's uh, look into this story here. So it starts with the word meanwhile at, the, at nine chapter, uh, chapter 9, um, verse 1. Meanwhile. So in other words, we're going to change the scene here. It's like we changed the channel or we flipped the, the chapter. We're starting into something new. So let's pick up with this story of Saul. And Saul is busy breathing out murderous threats against Jesus' disciples, it says. He's bre- breathing out murderous threats. Now, when you breathe, it's just like a regular thing, right? You just... You just, if you stop breathing, something would happen here right now, right? So you're breathing. He's living his life breathing out these threats. It's like constant in his life. He's going around threatening the followers of Jesus. He is arch enemy number one against the Christian church. He's like Osama bin Laden was, right? He's arch enemy number one against the Christian church, against the fellowship of Jesus. And just as the preaching of the gospel has now moved outside of Jerusalem because they've been scattered through the persecution, he's going outside of Jerusalem and following them. So they they thought they'd be safe if they just left Jerusalem because that's where all the, the mean guys were, right? That's where all the persecution was taking place. But no, 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 he's following them. He's expanding his persecution now into Damascus, another area outside of, of uh, Jerusalem. What he did here was if he found anyone who belonged to the way, you see that in the passage there? If he found anyone who belonged to the way. Now, what is the way? Anybody know? Who is the way is more how how it should be said. Who is the way? So he found anyone who belonged to Jesus. Jesus in this passage is referred to the way. I love that. Sometimes we just use his name. We forget like what he did. This is a name that helps us to know that he gave us a way back to God. If he finds anyone who was a member of Jesus or part of the way, belonged to the way, his plan was to take them back to Jerusalem in chains, it says. He was going to lock them up, chain them up, and bring them back for their punishment. This is a bad guy. This is a guy that everyone wanted to avoid, Right? On the road to Damascus, however, if you pick up in verse 3, as he got close to Damascus on his journey, and this is one of those biblical words you want to pay attention to, suddenly, suddenly is usually you know, tied in with a miracle of some sort, and in this case it is as well. Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. A light from heaven. 
I love the book of Acts because it's very exciting, right? It, it, it's got, you know, people being teleported to other places and, and now lights flashing around people. I mean, it, if people say the Bible's boring, they're not reading the right stuff, right? Then they're not understanding that this stuff really happened. So suddenly this light from heaven flashed around him. Now, light is an image that we use for God. Light is mentioned again and again and again in Scripture. In the Old Testament. So let's, let's talk about Saul, right? He, he's, a, he's a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knows the law and he knows the Old Testament. So Saul knows that in the Old Testament, light represents the presence of God. He instinctively knows that. He has studied the Word of God as a Pharisee back and forth and up and down. He knows the Old Testament law. He knows the book of Moses. So he, know, he knows all of the things that the prophets have said. So light in the Old Testament represents the presence of God. In fact, just to go back to think of one situation, in Exodus, when Moses was bringing the people out of their captivity and they met at Mount Sinai, and then Moses was going to ascend the mountain to meet with God, it says there were flashing lightning going on and on and on during that meeting. And the people down below that were watching the meeting were like, whoa, what is happening up there? They knew that this was, this was the place where God was meeting with Moses, where God was meeting with mankind. So Saul knew this. This is why he responds the way that he does. Before we move on, I just want to read you part of a psalm in Psalm 144. It's beautiful, and it, and it talks about light. Psalm 144, verses 5 and 6, it says, Part your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Send forth lightning and scatter your enemies. Reach down your hand and rescue me. A great passage to, to sit and, and meditate on and, and let God like comfort you with his power. Because he has great power. We often, we often as believers, as New Testament believers, we're very, very tuned into his grace and his mercy. But God is powerful. He is the power of the universe. So when you see something like lightning, it should remind you of the power of God. That's a small little piece of the power of God. But God is powerful. So Saul is instantly, suddenly in this thing. It's just happening, right? Then a voice says, continue with me. Then a voice says to him, it's funny that it says a voice. It says he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you persecute me? Now, it's interesting because Saul sort of presents like he understands that he's meeting with God here. But he is unsure of one thing. There's a point in the story that he's not quite sure about the identity of God. Look what Saul says in verse 5. Who are you, Lord? So he's recognized that this is God kind of in general, like many people do. If you ask Americans, you ask people even around the world, do you believe in God or a God? They'll say, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. 
There's got to be some intelligent life out there that did this and did that, right? The intelligent design theory, right? There's got to be somebody. So yeah, 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 I believe in God. So Saul's response is a little bit like that. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Who are you, God? Great question. Good question because it gets answered. In verse 5, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. I am Jesus who you are persecuting. This is where we want to slow down. We're quick. Especially those who have been in the word for years and years. We're quick. We know, we know, that, we know where this story is going. But don't jump so quickly. Slow down. When asked, who are you, Lord? Jesus answered, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. This is groundbreaking stuff. We've heard it a lot of times. If you're part of the church, if you're you're a biblical believer, you've heard this a lot of times. But this is groundbreaking stuff. This is major stuff. So we don't want to rush past and say, oh, yeah, I know that story. You know, when's you going to get to the point? This is the point. This is the point. Jesus is identifying himself with the people who Saul is persecuting. Because we know that if you know the Gospels, Jesus is already physically left the room. He's already gone up to heaven. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, Scripture tells us. So Jesus physically isn't there. But Jesus physically is there. I know, it's a little mind-blowing here. Jesus says, the one God-man who, who came, it was born in Bethlehem, who did the ministry, who died on the cross, that, that Jesus in that body is not there. But Jesus in another body is there. Get it? Get it? This is groundbreaking, if you get it. Jesus is in his people. So when his people are being persecuted, he's being persecuted. Get it? He's not separating himself one tiny centimeter or millimeter or whatever those things are called. He's not, he's not separating himself one bit from those who have put their faith in him, those who have been born again of the Spirit of God. He is them. It's kind of wild to think about. It doesn't line up with some of the things we think about ourselves. Doesn't line up with a lot of things we think about each other. When you're persecuting someone in the church of God, you're persecuting Jesus. That's what this says. When you're gossiping about someone in the church of God, you're gossiping about Jesus. When you're mad at somebody and holding a grudge against somebody in the church, the true church, the spiritual church of God, you're holding a grudge against Jesus. Hello? 
I get goosebumps. Ah, okay, tread lightly, tread lightly. Jesus identifies himself with his people. We sometimes think it's the other way around. We're identifying ourselves with him, but he did it first. Just like his love, that sometimes we share his love generously with other people, he did it first. He did it first. He set it up. He made that system work because it didn't work before. Your sin was in the way. You were separated from God because of your sin and the offense that it is to a holy God. But Jesus came and did the work of bringing us back together. You ought to say hallelujah at that point. Hallelujah. Your sin does not separate you from God. Jesus now identifies with you. I always just want to like stop and worship at moments like that. This is amazing. This is awesome. Jesus identifies himself. This isn't the first time that we've heard these words. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verse 16, he's teaching his disciples and he says, you know what? Whoever rejects you, rejects me. Do you remember that? Whoever rejects you, rejects me. You ever see like people, like characters in a movie or whatever, and, and, and it's like the little brother, the little, the little scrawny little brother, and then like the big brother, right? I had a big brother. I have a big brother. I shouldn't say had. I have a big brother. He's still taller than me, so he's still bigger than me. But when I was little, I was scrawny and he was big. He played football. He was captain of the basketball team. He was rough and tough and tumble. He liked to fight with his fists and all this stuff. And I was the little guy. I was like the, you know, help. You know, that's me, sadly. I'll just be honest. It is. So, so it was good to have a big brother. And I remember this one day. Karen, don't tell him. Well, you can tell him. I've told him before because he doesn't even remember. I was in the cafeteria at Wachusett. And, and it was like a food fight. People were like throwing cartons of milk and, and, and meatballs and all this kind of stuff. It was crazy. And I was in the middle of it like, ah, you know, like this. And there was this one kid who was really after me. He wasn't after me because of me. He was actually after me because of my big brother. My big brother wasn't very nice to him. They had had some clashes, some conflicts, we call it today. So they had some conflicts. And so he knew that I was little Curtis. That's what they called me. Little, little Curtis. It's a big Curtis and it's a little Curtis. I was little Curtis. And so this kid who was like bullying me didn't realize that my brother was coming. And when big Curtis showed up, there was a fight. And I just backed away. Because <laughs> big Curtis took care of the bully. This is what Jesus is like for us. He identifies with us. We're like little Jesuses. And he's like the big brother who says, you're messing with him, you're messing with me. You mess with him, you're going to meet me, right? That's what's happening here. This is why it like, should give us goosebumps. We should be full of praise because 
honestly, I don't care how big and rough and tough you are, you're not bigger than Jesus. You're not, you're not strong enough. You can't handle it all. You might handle some stuff on your own, but you know what? Life can get tough, and life does get tough. And that's when we say, thank God for Jesus. He's my big brother. He comes in when the battle gets rough. He comes in and he takes over the battle for me. The battle belongs to the Lord, not me. He defends me. He's my stronghold. He's my fortress. He's my shield. He's my deliverer. That's why we sing these songs. We're trying to get this deep inside of us. Because when life gets tough, when it starts bullying us, we can't handle it. We can't. It's too hard. We weren't actually made to handle it. God didn't make us to handle the world. God didn't make you. I know sometimes you think you're the, the queen of the universe or the king of the world, but you're not. You're not. You're like crazy in your head if you think you are. There's only one God, and he's the king of the universe. He's the king over all the earth. And we are tiny little ones that he loves and protects. And he loves to protect. And this, just pausing and thinking about that, should fill your heart with confidence, with peace. You don't have to fear. You don't have to run and be afraid. You can stand in Christ, fully clothed in Christ, with the armor of God from head to toe, and know that God's got you. God's got you. He will defend you. He will deliver you. He will help you. It might be tough. He might make you, you know, do some of the work because there's sometimes work to be done in us. But he is your helper. Realize this. Church, realize this. Now, Saul, there's two things. I said there's two truths here. That, that Saul realizes all of a sudden in this lightning flashing, fall to the ground, kind of like, who are you, Lord, type of situation. The first thing he realizes is that God is Jesus. Jesus is not like junior God. God is Jesus, and Jesus is God. And this, for a good Jew, a Pharisee of Pharisees, Paul calls himself, was mind-blowing. Jesus, that guy we crucified on the cross and put in a tomb, the one that there's rumors that he wrote, he is God? He is God. Paul, Saul, I'm sorry, he hasn't got his name changed yet. Saul realizes the Lord is God when he says, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. So the fact that God is Jesus is huge, maybe not for you or me, maybe because we were brought up in the church and we understand that from day one, but for this poor guy, that like rocked him to the core. Jesus? Wait, you mean Jesus of Nazareth? Wait, you mean the one that has those disciples who I'm trying to get rid of? Wait, You mean the one that we hung on the cross like he was a criminal? Wait. Jesus. 
is God and God is Jesus? Yes! Yes, yes, yes! Don't let anyone tell you otherwise and make sure you go tell other people that. That's a truth that will change your life. The second truth is that Jesus is one with his people. Jesus is one with his people. There's no separation between us and Jesus because the cross paid the price to get rid of that separation, to get rid of that obstacle of sin. Now, do his people sin sometimes? Of course they do. Of course we do. (laughs) But our sin does not separate us. This is the guy, this is Saul, who becomes Paul, who wrote, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Neither height, nor depth, or powers, or principalities, sword, or famine, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, the love of God in Christ. That's why he wrote that. He, 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 he spent so much of his time understanding that concept. Not only is God Jesus, and Jesus is God, but Jesus is now one with his people, the church. He's one with the bodies of those who are following him by the way, because he is the way. He went from being abstract, like somewhere out there at a distance, to he inhabits his people. He lives inside of his people. And, and he's multiplying every day because people are being saved every day. And so even though I'm persecuting them, I'm trying to put them in prison, I'll never get them all in prison because by the time I put them all in prison, the prison guards become a Christian and now I got to put him in prison. And then pretty soon, like his family's a Christian and then the next family's a Christian and, and, and more and more people are identifying as Jesus. And Jesus is identifying with them because they are the people of God. They are his people this is scandalous this is this is killing Saul's mind and everything that he believes because it's so scandalous and radical of a change these two simple but not simple things the shared life of Jesus is still found in human flesh You know that passage in the beginning of the Gospel of John where it says, the word became flesh. Does anyone know the next words? Excuse me? And dwelt among us. Dwelt means lived, right? The word became flesh and lived among us. Now, this is what blew my mind. I'm a good church boy. I know the story of Jesus being born in the flesh of a virgin and living his life. I know that. You know that, hopefully. But if the word became flesh, and now Jesus says, you're persecuting me, these other people in the flesh, then the word is still flesh and dwells among us. Do we even recognize that? Do we even pause long enough to acknowledge that? God lives in us, with us, 
around us and before us, behind us, under us, over us. God is, God is in his people and his people are in him. This is huge. When he says those words, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, in verse 5, this is huge because what it says is that Jesus, who we know he has ascended in that one physical body he was using, is now in multiple physical bodies all over the earth because you are representing Christ everywhere you go. It's hard to believe because you know yourself. You know sometimes you get grumpy. Sometimes you get nasty. Sometimes you don't tell the truth. Sometimes you gossip about your pastor. Sometimes you gossip about each other to your pastor. It's all kinds of ways that we miss the mark. But nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. This should change our world. And it is changing our world. Now you see, Saul's a good example for us. Because we get to see him be changed. We love testimonies. We love to hear how things were, then the meeting with Jesus, and then how things became, right? This is one of those stories. Saul has now personally experienced the Lord Jesus. Personally. And he will soon, we'll see it in Acts chapter 13, he'll soon be so radically changed that he gets his name changed. From Saul to Paul. And you think, what's the big deal, Pastor? It's one little letter. Listen to this. Saul, if you read the Old Testament, Saul was the first king of Israel. Saul was a king. And so that's a nice strong name. Name your son after a king or a president or a prime minister. Those are strong people. Those are strong names. So if you were Saul's parents... You had a baby boy. You say, let's name, him, let's name him after the first king of Israel, Saul. Okay, let's do it. Guess what God names Saul? You already know, Paul. Guess what Paul means? Anybody know? Little. <laughs> Paul means little, small, humble. <laughs> I love it. Don't you? Take this guy who thinks he's going to beat up on my people. He's going to put him in prison. He's going to put him in chains. He's going to get rid of him. Take this guy who thinks he's all that and change his name to Tiny. <laughs> who says God doesn't have a sense of humor? <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love God because he thought of that. Anyway, this is great because his whole life changes so much that he doesn't care that he's called tiny because he knows how big God is now. He understands that God is everywhere. God is in God's people. God is in heaven. God is all around. And so he understands it's all about how big God is, not how big we are. 
And we're all small in his presence anyways, even if we want to try to fool ourselves. Do you know, this man, because he was so radically changed and God was able to speak to him like this so directly, this man wrote most of the rest of the New Testament. Not all of it. There's a few other guys who get a little piece in there. Luke, the physician, he wrote the most words. He wrote uh, 37,900 words in the New Testament because he wrote the, the gospel of Luke, which is a long gospel. It's got a lot of detail in it. And he wrote the book of Acts. That's it. But that adds up to, if you want to do the word count, 37,932 words. Paul comes in second. So there's all these other disciples, Peter, James, John, all these other disciples. Uh Uh-uh. Paul. Paul writes 32,408 words, just a little less than Luke. God used him mightily. Because these two truths changed everything for him. They changed everything. They changed who he thought he was. They changed who, who he was going to live for. They changed everything. And the Holy Spirit inspired him to write to the church. He wrote letter after letter after letter. That's why it's Ephesians and Philippians. These are the churches in Ephesus, the church in Philippi, the church in Colosseum, wherever, Colossians. What is the name of that place? Colossae? Colossae. Yeah, I just got to put the accent where it belongs. Anyway, these churches are the churches that Christ identifies himself with. Remember, Christ and his people are now one. This is huge. So let's, let's dive into this. We, we, we have this slide, and it's just going to kind of highlight some of what I'm going to say here because I have a few minutes left before I invite the worship team up. I want you, I want you to see this. The Bible uses an amazing number of terms and expressions and images to reveal this reality of our oneness with God. It's called oneness with God through Christ. He made us one with God. Our sins have been forgiven. The apostle Paul, Saul in today's story, he can't stop talking about it. Look at these, look at these things that he says. Here's just a few examples from the books that he wrote in the New Testament. Believers are created in Christ. Nope, first slide. Go back to the one before that, Alvin. Believers are created in Christ. They are crucified with Christ. They are buried with Christ. They are baptized into Christ and into his death. They are united with Christ. They are resurrected with Christ They are seated with him in heavenly places. Christ is formed in believers. He dwells in our hearts. It's amazing. The church is the body of Christ. That's what we refer to it as. Christ is in us. Christ is in him. We are in him. The church is one flesh. The the believers, they gain Christ because they're found in him. Also, in Christ, we are justified. We are glorified. We are sanctified. Those are fancy words, but they're good words. We're called by him, and we are made alive. We are created to be new. We are adopted. We are elected by Christ. 
That's just from what Paul wrote. A few of the things that Paul wrote. Because this thing just, just got, got traction inside of his mind. He's like, wait a minute. Then that means this. That means that. That means we're elected. That means we're one. That means we're made new in Christ. That means we're alive in Christ. That means we're found in Christ. That means we're sanctified in Christ. That means he called us in Christ. That means we have gained Christ. Paul goes crazy writing about this. Because the Holy Spirit knew this was going to get him. This was going to get him to understand who God is in us now through Jesus Christ. We got to do that work. We got to put ourselves in that flow. You know, C.S. Lewis, famous, famous author, famous Christian author, he calls the incarnation of God, the Son, the central miracle of Christianity. The central miracle of Christianity. That's a bold statement. The incarnation. Incarnation means to be made flesh. That God could bring himself down to this level and and impart himself into our lives. But C.S. Lewis is right. If you think about redemption and restoration and recreation and the reconciliation of sinners, this is the central thing that we understand and believe without ever ceasing to be fully who God is, he is fully identifying himself with us. Now, you would think he would have to just say, oh, I'm not God anymore. I'm just going to go down there and be crazy like them. But he's able to be God and stay holy through his spirit in his people who are not quite holy yet, but are being made holy as we walk with him, as we get to know him. The principal reason underlying all the other magnificent reasons that God the Son united himself to our humanity is this, that by the Holy Spirit we may be united to Christ and enjoy knowing our Father in heaven forever. This is called eternal life, that we may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, John 17, 3. That we may know our Father. Some people say, oh, I, I want to become a Christian so I don't have to feel guilty. I want to become a Christian because they're such nice people. I want to, no. The reason you should know, the reason you should become a Christian is so that you can know your Heavenly Father. That is the ultimate blessing. If you, if you remember, at the beginning of the year, we went over our Holden, Holden Chapel purpose statement together. Because I want you to see how central this is. The, the purpose statement that they came up with in 1976, and we're, we're dusting it off and trying to get back into it. The purpose is to grow together as a church, ever moving forward toward into wholeness in Christ. For ourselves and for others. By knowing him better. And by better making him known. That's why we gather That's why we do what we do. Christ's union with us is a profoundly real and intense intimacy that we have barely scratched the surface of. And my challenge received from God to me and to you is that we need to start scratching more of that surface. We need to start getting to know him better. 
understanding that our union with the living Christ is the essential truth to our new life and to our eternal existence. Life now and life forever has to do with you knowing Christ and Christ identifying himself with you and through you. Elvin, switch down to the slide that says we are saved in Christ and we are the church in Christ. I think we're very individualistic in our thinking. I know we are. I know I am. And so we forget about the church. But Jesus never forgets about the church. Jesus calls the church his bride, the bride of Christ. So he's, he's given her this, this exalted position, this, this honorable position, this beautiful position. And so often we're just thinking about me and Jesus, just me alone and Jesus, just me alone with Jesus, and it's not the way Jesus sees you. He sees you as part of the body of Christ, as part of his bride. And not just here in this room, but all around the world, and not just all around the world today, but all around the world from the time he died until he comes again. The bride of Christ is being built. This is why we have the confidence to sing this last song, which we're going to sing now. And there's a line in this song that sometimes say, well, is it okay to say that? I want you to know it's okay to say that. There's a line in the song near the end that says, we are the church. And we are the hope on earth. We could only say that about Jesus. But if Jesus is in us, then we are the hope of earth. Not with all your ragginess and all that, but in Christ, with the Holy Spirit guiding us, helping us, moving us along, we are the church. He identifies himself with us, and we should identify ourselves with him, and we should realize the work that he has done to get us there. Amen? Amen. 